Uh, yes, I had gluten-free toast for breakfast. It was very average, but I did have an amazing swim. I swam the Coogee Bay there and back and ran to, where did I run to? Bronte from Coogee and back. It was excellent. Um, okay. I'm <laughs> I'm so intimidated. <laughs> I literally get out of my bed in the morning. Hilarious. I'm so unfit. I'm just so anti-gym <clears throat> culture, and I know I could just... Go don't and swim don't and run. go to the gym. Go to nature. Yeah, I need to go nature to nature more. Nature feeds you. It's the ultimate mother. You're so right. You're so right. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Kim Farrant, director of Angel of Mine. You're welcome. <laughs> Glad to be here. Can I ask the first question because it was one that I wanted to ask? Yes, please. I'm really curious about what kind of mindset you need to be in in order to make a thriller because I feel like we know a lot about what it takes to make a comedy or other genre type films. But what place, what headspace do you need to be in when you're making the thriller? That's such a fantastic question and nobody has asked me that. Well, for me, the mind space, the headspace was one of utter, you know, being uncomfortable the entire time. So that's what I want the audience to feel, to feel like on the edge of their seat. A guy came up to me after a screening at the Melbourne Film Festival and he said, how did you do that? I, I wanted to leave so badly in every minute and, and at the same time, I could not keep my eyes off the screen. And he was like, I'm really annoyed at you mm. <laughs> because I felt so uncomfortable. And I was like, well, that's what I wanted you to feel. Like, that's the whole point. And that's what the main character's going through is this kind of terrain within herself, which is just right on the edge and it feels so disgusting and so untenable to reside in. So to make, for me to, to set that tone on set was to hold a big, strong space for the actors to unravel and for everyone to kind of stay within that very deep o- ocean floor of emotion rather than like skimming to the surface and mm. letting off tension with comedy and whatnot. I mean, you know, we, we all wanted to have a, a good shoot, which we did, but not to dissipate the depth of intensity that that the characters are living in in this story. So it's about like how if I role model that energy on set, if I stay in that kind of intensity and holding that, then it makes it a lot easier for the cast and then the crew kind of support that. Forgive me for potentially comparing you to other directors, but I have heard a lot of other female directors talking about the desire to create characters or scenarios that are cringeworthy or hard to watch or challenging but still so absorbing and it just seems like a really beautiful canon that we're entering where it's this willingness to watch things that are uncomfortable and make you make your skin crawl but that is still super hypnotic i'm just thinking about lynn ramsey's work and also lena dunham's work where there's just so much to not like but it's still something that hypnotizes anyway well, uh, so from my perspective, whether I'm female or male, to me it's about making relatable, identifiable characters because I all, you know, we all experience those horrible parts of self that we despise, we don't like, we perceive them as unlovable, unforgivable, you know, be it our rage or our intense grief or our, you know, desire, whatever it is. And so it's about, for me, normalising the extremities of human behavior. So rather than us going behind closed doors with our grief or like, you know, submerging our rage until one day it finally pops and suddenly you're murdering people in the street, it's about how do we make those 
more intense emotions, the ones that often people say, you, that's a bit much, you're being too much, or it's too intense. How do we kind of create a safe space for those, put them on screen, and so people go, oh my God, that person, that star, that character is just like me. I feel that. I feel that hmm. depth of rage. I feel that depth of sorrow and loss when someone dies that I feel like, you know, my whole heart's been ripped out and my guts have been taken from me. You know, I wanted to make it relatable for people within the extremes. Do you find it hard to create work out of something that's so vulnerable or showing vulnerability like that? Well, my motto is the strength to be vulnerable. So it takes incredible strength to allow yourself to be so vulnerable and be exposed in front of people. So I have a practice of vulnerability. I have a practice of, you know, within myself dropping into, okay, what's really going on that my guards come up right now or that I'm feeling like I have to to fight in this moment? How can I soften? How can I come back to my heart space rather than like, oh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want people to see how vulnerable I am, and therefore I'm going to act like everything's fine or whatever. There's, I mean, we fall in love with people when we see their vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. That's what. You, and and but within ourselves, we're like, oh my god, if you saw this, you could never love me. But actually, it's the thing we adore about each other. So, uh, to me, that's the sweet spot: is showing that kind of depth of feeling. And for the actor, just like it is for us as human beings, you know, it's just as vulnerable to show your rage. A lot of us learn as children, like, if I get angry, you'll withdraw the love. If I get angry, you'll hit me. If I get angry, you know, you'll say I'm, I'm rude or I'm not a good girl or a good boy or whatever. So it's equally as exposing to be in our wrath, you know, which within this story of Angel of Mine, you know, the character of Lizzie you know she's on a mission and she's pissed you know so and that was equally as exposing as the kind of whirlpool of grief that is is hitting her like tsunami after tsunami both the um actors that you've worked with in your past two features Nicole Kidman and Numi Rapace is that am I pronouncing her last name you are um thank you I would say, and I hope this isn't too strong of a read, are kind of on the front line of misogyny in cinema um, in terms of dragon tattoo and... Challenging misogyny. Challenging misogyny. Not saying that they're like the foot soldiers of misogyny (laughs) or anything. Um, But they both said about you that they found that they were waiting for a director like you. I mean, I know that Numi's been saying that recently and I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember reading when Strangeland came out in 2015, Nicole Kidman saying that. Can you talk a little bit about what they meant and what your common ground was? Yeah, okay. Um, so, well, I, what Numi, the way she said it to me was, you know, I, I said to her, like, I love your work in Dragon Tattoo and in Prometheus, the Alien series and The Drop and all amazing in those big Hollywood films, but would you be prepared to do something more stripped back, more raw? you know, with kind of a a less polished, I suppose, uh, appearance. And she was like, oh, my God, yes. And and I said, well, I can offer you either story and character notes and just give you that, or I can go on a deeper dive with you and I can also help create a space and go through processes with you both in rehearsals and on set to unravel you, to unhinge you, to unearth all the solid ground and all your defense mechanisms that arise neurologically when you feel 
that child within you, which is often where the actors, you know, accessing their material for the character, when you feel that child threatened, you know, normally we go into fight, flight, freeze or surrender, but I can help you to disarm those mechanisms so that the character, what she's going through, can just channel through you, including all of those untenable emotions that you yourself, the actor, might normally run from. And that's when she kind of breathed a major sigh of relief and mm-hmm. said, directors are terrified of me, Kim. They are. They don't challenge me. They don't push me. They accept, you know, like the first take or the first performance, but they're not willing to excavate and go deeper for something that maybe even I don't know how to access in myself. So she was like, I've been looking for you my whole life, my whole career, bring it on. And then she systematically just surrendered to me. Like I gave her this one process, which is a a shaking um, movement practice to do every morning where you shake for 15 minutes and then you dance and while you're shaking you like you just valve any kind of repressed emotion or feeling that's in the way and you just let it out through sound so you're shaking violently and then you're dancing and then you meditate and she did that every single day of rehearsals and for the 27 day shoot so if that meant getting up at three in the morning to do an hour's practice before her 4 a.m. pickup to go into makeup from 4.30 till 5.30 to start being on set at 5.45, she would do it. And that shaking, like, because when you move things in the body, emotions that are stored, like everything that's ever happened to us is stored in every cell in our body, those things will unblock. They'll unlock, they'll unleash. So then she was like this vessel and just the stuff that was coming through her. I had this hilarious comment after the screening in one of the screenings in Melbourne the other day where this woman said to me, you must have used a lot of viscerine on Miss Rapace. Viscerine being the stuff you put in eyes to make you cry. And I laughed and I said, we did not use one drop of viscerine on this movie. All those tears from every single actor in the movie is real. And that's because the actors were so willing to feel everything in service of character. You were just speaking Jackanized language right now. I'm, I'm almost like need a moment to recover, not recover, but I know. process that. We we have a question here about spirituality because I just guess I hope that when we meet filmmakers, they have some sort of spirituality that they kind of be- dive into or live by. And that's something that I think you've just expressed just then. I know, we almost didn't need to prompt it. It's yeah. like you're talking about the body, you're talking about meditation, but Cause I was doing... yeah, what does spirituality, how does that work in creating a space for your actors? Well, can I first just acknowledge yeah. you both? Like, I've never in all the press I've ever done in my entire career heard any journalist speak of spirituality, except okay. when a journalist recently asked me, like it was taboo, are you spiritual? And I said, I don't know. Do you think I'm spiritual? I have a spirit. <laughs> you know, anyway. But I, so I love that you're even that that's in your vernacular and in your consciousness. So I suppose my my way of approaching things is that I to direct, I have to have my whole being open, my heart, my senses in my energetic body. I have to feel performance and I feel it through the body. So if I feel an actor's block somewhere, I can usually sense, oh, like something's going on in their chest or something's going on in their groin or something's going on in their throat. There's obviously something that needs to be expressed. So I read the body energy. For me to do that, I have to have my own instrument, my own energetic body, my own emotions cleared before I can do that. Otherwise, 
you know, if I'm running my own stuff, if I'm angry about something that someone did or if I'm upset about something or if I'm feeling really vulnerable about something, then my own stuff will get in the way. So I see myself as a vessel in which to feel what the characters are feeling, what the actors are feeling, what's going on in the weather, in the environment, on the set, on the energy of the movement of the camera. I have to kind of work through my own stuff, which I do as a practice in the morning before I go to set, so that I'm clear with an open heart. You know, otherwise, the other thing is, if I haven't attended to my own well-being, my own self-care, then I'll get depleted. Mm. So, you know, that I can't afford to do that on a film set. I have to be in my aptimo, like optimum health so that I can be responding to question after question after question and making decision after decision after decision all day long. And every time you make a decision, you're choosing one thing over the other. You're saying no to something, and that takes a lot of energy to be able to do that with care and respect for people when they're making these amazing creative offerings, and you're saying yes to something and no to something else. So, you know, I have to work hard to make sure I am nourished, filled up, taken care of myself, and that I've attended to my own emotional stuff, whatever's going on, so that I can be fully of service to the cast, hold space for them, as I said to Numi, let me be a container for you to unhinge in, you know, but let me be the wall so you feel safe so that you can, like, lose your mind. And that speaks a lot to duty of care, which I think is a big conversation in cinema right now, both for audiences and for people on set, and how that comes into it and how we can take real-life situations or real-life emotions and put them on screen, but how do we do that ethically? You know, where are the, the boundaries and how are you willing to hold everyone? Can you talk about the audience and how you feel about duty of care to the audience. Yeah, well, that's really interesting because, you know, obviously I do feel a great duty of care to both, you know, my cast, to the crew um, and to the people who are going to watch the film. And then in this film, you know, there's some intense stuff on the screen at certain points, but the duty of care was in like, okay, so for instance, there's a sex scene. It's not graphic. You don't see any genitalia. You don't see any you know, flesh, it, it's it's actually mostly fully clothed. And yet the intensity of it is emotionally what's going on for the characters. So for the audience, I wanted them to feel what, especially what the main character was feeling. And then the effect that that had, in this instance, the sex scene is with a man and, and Numi's character, you know, is in, is in the grips of grief. And so underneath all of the sex, you know, that it lies that emotion. And then there was a duty of care of like, well, how does that affect the male character? And then what's that going to trigger in the audiences? And so, you know, it, it does. It, it creates a response in people. But in that way, it was like, well, let's, you know, let's explore putting on, on the screen what it feels like when someone, you know, is acting out sexually from their pain body. How does that impact another human being so that as an audience we can reflect on that when we're in sex and it's just about us and it's not about connection with the other person it's not about a real intimacy how does that you know land with another human being mm. and also with how that resonates in their physical body especially when you have touch involved so it's like it's like holding the audience within the safety of 
there's nothing gratuitous in the scene, but you're going to go on a big, intense ride. Mm. Yeah, that's really intense. I wanted to ask a question about, and I never want to say first film because it's just on IMDb and I'm sure that there were things that came before, but Alias, which came out in the 90s, which was a film about a male sex worker in Sydney, and now you're making films that are incredibly nuanced about motherhood. You kind of are the post-Madonna Hall complex filmmaker. Is there something... Did you say post-Madonna Hall? Madonna Hall complex. I love it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love it. Um, and sort of working beyond, beyond the binary, I mean, there's so much work about mothers, um, but we seem to be entering a real age of um, nuance about it and people telling it in very personal ways. Is there anything about Alias that informed your work about mothers? So, well, actually, Alias is not my first film, just so you know. That's what I would My first film was Beloved, which was Zoe Caridis and John Paulson, and the pretty much two-thirds of the entire film was a sex scene. Hilarious. Wow. The first thing I ever shot was on 35mm, and it was a two-shot of a sex scene. Sounds like in us. 40 Sounds degree like us. heat <gasps> in an attic oh. with two big actors. So, it, <laughs> you know, when I say big, a big name. Um, so that was intense. Anyway, when I made Alias, I was exploring you know, what defines, quotes, a sex worker? And the amazing guy that was in the film, Jay, who had four names, Jay, Todd, Toby and Craig, all the different aliases he used in order to be okay with being a sex worker, he said this thing, which is, you know, we've all gone out one night and let someone buy us drinks and then they've asked us to go home and we've thought, oh, well, I may as well and maybe felt a little obligated. And I thought there was something so pertinent in that, that you don't have to have been a sex worker to have a a financial transaction around sex, that you could have been in a marriage for a very long time, and then it goes south, and then you get divorced, and suddenly one party's like wanting their money because a part of them feels like, well, I put out sexually as a part of the arrangement, you know, and I want something back. So, I mean, people have all sorts of stuff emotionally and it all plays out in the bedroom all of our shit that doesn't get dealt with you know in in the relationship will play out sexually so there's something about that 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 learning that kind of dive into sexuality and in and alias was a documentary so it was a real person's life a real person that was having sex with both men and women and he said you know 95 percent of the men Sorry, he said mostly with the men, it's 95% talking, 5% sex, which I thought was really incredible. He's like, it's more about talking about the things they can't talk to their partners about. You know, 5% of it's just the sexual bit, and then it's like all this other intimacy that comes out. Mm. And then he said with the women, it's about companionship. But I remember, I remember always thinking about that, you know, how the emotional stuff plays out, you know, in the bedroom. And so... That's very much been an inspiration for within all of my films and, you know, an angel of mine, case in point, what's going on deep under the surface for this this character of Lizzie, which is played by Numi, you know, does play out in that sex scene. I was really struck when you said, when you were talking about how everyone's put themselves in a sexual situation, knowing the context of it and not having it be something that's you know, sweeping you up, but instead, you know, being something that you're aware of is actually tapping into something that's a bit more transactional and that might not be something that... Basically, that's just something that's very plotted and you're entering a space where you're like, okay, this is happening for this reason and 
Well, that can be. Which can how be, it can yeah. Roll out. There can also be, you know, where you're completely innocent and oblivious and out of your depth, and suddenly someone's buying you drinks, and you just think they're friendly and they're buying you drinks, mm. and then the heavy hand of like, well, you know, I bought you drinks all night. Come on. Come on home. Come on home. Like, yeah. what, what are you doing? Did you leave me on? I mean, there can be that. Mm. I and guess I just. Busted. I guess no, it's okay. I, I've just finished watching Big Little Lies and um, thinking about how. You watch these. Uh, you watch from the start of the encounter until the bedroom, and you can see the characters knowing what they're in for and kind of entering that space, knowing what every single step means and what it represents. And it's it feels like the opposite to just what you were saying before: the innocent person just being enraptured and just going with the flow. I just find it so interesting that people are fascinated to see what it's like to just enter a sexual encounter that's quite plotted and where you, you understand what's going to happen and you kind of play into that plotting. Does that make sense? It does. I think what you're speaking to is sexual kinks. Maybe, I yeah. I think it is. you're speaking to the shadows that live within us, often undigested, often unrealised, un- unrecognised. But again, those shadows will play out somewhere. Mm. And for many of us, they play out in the bedroom. That's what it is. And it's the idea that you really have to follow your instincts and your kinks because they're always going to be in you. And if you don't, it's almost like if you don't um, release your demons, not that they're demons, but if you don't release it, it'll just lay dormant and you need to open open yourself up to them. So when you say the idea is that you have to follow them, what I would say is if you're going to follow them, and I, I have nothing against following them, then the the offering would be to do it in a healthy, conscious way. Mm-hmm. But when you do that kind of kink exploration and you you are inebriated or you're out of it, then it doesn't hold any space for the emotional stuff that drives the kink. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So it's coming from a kink usually comes from a wound or a shadow. You know, you were dominated and hit as a child. There may be a kink there. But if you don't hold a space for that, if you're going mm. to explore that sexually, then it can be really unsafe, mm. right? So it's kind of, you can explore kinks in sexuality within a devoted, loving relationship mm. as long as you bring awareness to it and you know and you consciously speak about this is what we're doing and this is what I'd like to explore. Mm. And then you do something like debrief it and you hold a space for all the emotions that come up afterwards, completely sober with things like eye contact Mm-hmm. and the space for any emotion that arises as a result of that exploration. Mm. I, guess I hope I, these I, boys are still listening. Seriously. <laughs> Which boys? Just all of them. All yeah. the 95% of men who spent 95% of their time talking to this male sex worker. I hope they listen to this stuff and it sets in. Because yeah. there is such a problem with this and men not talking and not holding space and finding safe ways to explore their kinks and mm-hmm. feeling like they're not shameful and... You know, feeling yeah, love. Yeah, but it's not just men. It's, it's not, women yeah. as well. It's, mm. it's all of us not holding a space for the shadows that live within us and all the feelings that arrive, you know, as a result of sexuality. So, you know, like, if you can do that and bring it up and talk about it, which is why I try and make films that don't exclude sexuality. I mean, it has to be a part of the story. It's not just to put it in there for no reason, but it's a part of life. It's a part of how we create life. Mm. So... You know, in the case of Angel of Mine, this woman, because of her grief, has not been dating for seven years because she couldn't be intimate because all the feelings would arise when she'd be sexual or when she'd Mm. even go on a date. And so she's had to avoid this thing. So it's a very necessary part. But it's like, 
I, for me as an artist, I'm, I want to bring these things out of the shadows because when stuff exists only in that murky subterranean aspect of our lives behind closed doors and hidden, it breeds shame. Mm. And shame just makes people feel you know, awful about themselves. So if you can shine a light on shame, bring, you know, as Leonard Cohen says, like the wound is where the light gets in, like put light there, then there actually can be a healthy transition into something that's, you know, more embodied and joyful and beautiful about people's shadows and their sexuality. There's something in Numi Rapace and in Yvonne Strahovski's performance in Angel of Mine, so exquisite about the depth of rage, vulnerability, anguish, insecurity, madness, because it's it's exposed, it's seen, it's not in this horrible, you know, hidden, underground, rejected mm. part of themselves. So I was really celebrating those parts of ourselves, which most of us find untenable. Thank you so much for saying this and for helping me articulate it because what I think I'm getting at and to combine all the points that we've covered the diving to the bottom of the sea as opposed to the surface uh, Numi's um, preparations at 3am of just shaking the body discovering the shadows and creating a space to expose and let light into the wounds it's a beautiful thing to create just a window that allows you to look in and also bring out as well and thanks for being so real with us oh you're so welcome well thanks for your Incredible questions. Stop it. Love it. <laughs> no, I'm serious. We're oh, very God, nervous. Such a breath of fresh air. Oh. Please come back for the next one. I of will. Course, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Thanks Kim. So much Appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. Great. That's a wrap. Yay. Cool. I'm serious. I've never had such honest, open, real, fucking connected oh. questions. And I, I swear, sometimes I feel like I'm being press raped because the mm. questions are like so banal and yet invasive and then there's no feedback like you guys give feedback so i know i'm resonating oh. but people normally they just take all the questions and they go on more and more and more but yeah. they give you nothing and it's it's like eventually yeah. i just wake up going oh my god the first ma- awesome. major interview that and you have to hold yourself as well you have to not yeah you have to keep giving yeah. you have to keep giving even if they're giving nothing so i just it, yeah. really want to acknowledge both of you and the that's way that's very very sweet it'll go very far that's really sweet and keep people open this podcast is produced by fbi radio in sydney find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts